Welcome to the Real Estate Investing Podcast, where we help you unlock your potential freedom through land investing, real estate investing, and entrepreneurship. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Real Estate Investing Podcast. Today's topic, we're discussing the risk of doing poor due diligence. I'm your host, Andrew Apke, joined again by my brother and business partner, Ron Apke. Before we get into the show, let's go over a question from one of our featured Discord members. Today's question is from John. John asked, what are the main tools that you guys use to evaluate land? Really good question, John. Um, I'd say number one, Dan, is MapRite, right? ID Land. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, so what ID Land does, it tells us all the overlays on the land. So it tells us wetlands, it tells us floodplain, it tells us the slope. That is our first layer of due diligence and by far the most used tool in our land analysis. Um, is there anything else even close to it? I mean, Zillow's next. Yeah. Or a Redfin or whatever you guys are using for comps. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, Zillow, Redfin, comps. But that first stage is the land due diligence, which is the quality of land, which we do 90% on uh, MapRite. Yeah, so MapRite, land ID, ID.land, whatever it's called. That's where we actually evaluate the land itself. And then we use the comps and the MLS and things like that, like Zillow, Redfin, all that to analyze the actual pricing of the land. Between those two, we can get, you know, 80% of our due diligence or more done. Other than that, let's get into the show. Today's topic, we're talking about the risk of doing poor due diligence. This is an underspoken topic, I think, Ron, and people don't learn their lesson until it comes the hard way. Absolutely. And we've definitely learned our lesson before, not necessarily in losing money, but Doing deals where you probably wouldn't do those deals again yeah. if you found some of this stuff out before. Uh, but yeah, doing proper due diligence, it doesn't mean taking too much time. Like we still do all of our due diligence 24 to 48 hours maximum, but doing it the right way, getting the right answers, not overlooking things because some people get so biased. That's what I see, Dan. Yeah. People get so biased in their deals. Emotionally attached to their land. Exactly. And then there's like nothing that can turn them off of the land right. and then they make bad decisions. Exactly. And I feel like that's one of the things, Ron, that's especially when people are newer, it's less looked at because they haven't been burned before. And that's part of the reason why we also buy at 40, 50 percent of market value, because we're buying it, taking on so much unknown risk that when these things have come up, a lot of times we we haven't really lost money because of bad due diligence. When those due diligence things come up, our margins shrink drastically. But luckily, we're buying at 40, 45 percent, Ron. So it's typically been OK. It's not ideal, but it's typically been OK because of that. Yeah, that's when I get nervous when some people come in maybe with fifty, hundred thousand dollars. They get a deal that might be buying for, or they, someone negotiated up from twelve to twenty thousand dollars. They're like, I can sell it for still for thirty. I'm yeah. buying for twenty. That's when you really get burned. Is when you start buying at sixty percent of market value. Do proper due diligence or find something out after you buy it, and then you're going to start losing money eventually. Funders too have to be very careful of this. Absolutely. I mean, funders, you got it. When you're a funder, you have to do due diligence like it's your own deal. That's how we do it. Um, like we go through all the normal things. You don't just trust a partner just to trust them. Uh, like it's your money going out. So you need to respect your money going out and not put it in the wrong spot. Yeah. Let's talk about why it's so important. Like why, why due diligence? Why is it so important to conduct it? What can go wrong? So, I mean, HOAs are one thing that I can just think about the top of my head of people overlooking sometimes. So HOAs, someone saying something's not an HOA, it's going to be drastically different selling a piece of land in rural America in an yeah. HOA versus not in an HOA. Speed and usually the amount you can sell it for as well, that's a very common thing. So you can imagine just something like not finding out if it's an HOA, 
it can cost you 30, 40% of your return on investment and cost you months and months because they are extremely difficult to sell. And HOAs are very individual. Like you, you can find comps that make your property look very good outside of HOAs in rural America, whatever it is. And then all of a sudden your property's in HOA and you can't put mobile homes or whatever the situation is. It shrinks your buying pool down. And although the comps may look good, you want to find comps inside the HOA. That's a huge one. That's massive because some HOAs are very, very you know, not desirable compared to just vacant, unrestricted land. So that's one of the first thing we look at because not H all HOAs are bad. A lot of people get this thing when we say all HO HOAs are bad. It's the more highly restrictive ones, the ones that are, you know, 80% vacant, not filled. They're 80% vacant for a reason. The subdivision was done in 1990. It still hasn't filled up. There's only 20 lots out of 200 of them filled, Ron. That's a sign that it's not desirable. Those are the type of things we look at with HOAs, but there's some other things we look at in due diligence. Let's talk about the basics. Like what are some of the basics we're looking at in due diligence? Yeah, so basics are, so we, talk, we talked about the land. So when we overview, or when we looked at the land with our Discord question, that was basically what tools we use. I said yep. MapRite, ID.land is what it's now called. Um, and that's telling us floodplain, wetlands, slope is a big one. Slope is one that's very difficult, not impossible, but very difficult to be 100% sure of on the computer. So that's where some people can go wrong. Computer might say it's not as bad as slope. You don't get boots on the ground before that. And then you buy the property and you see that it's straight up a hill or something like that. And then the other ones, like when you call the county and you have zoning restrictions, whether it's mobile home lots, city limits, Dan, is one that you'll see oh, a lot. Yeah. So if you're in city limits, a lot of times it's more difficult to sell land because more restrictions, more taxes a lot of times. Uh, so that is one thing where you got to keep in mind, even these tiny little cities that you wouldn't think would have restrictions, have restrictions. Almost and all it, can, of them. it can be so difficult to sell in the price. Again, similar to an HOA, I think, though. It's very, very similar to an HOA. But then you can't hunt a lot of times in yep. city limits. You can't do certain things like city limits depending on the city has been one of the biggest deterrents of just buying and selling land. I think like it just acts, like you said, just like an HOA, but like flipping versus wholesaling, Ron, there's risk versus reward. We're doing all this due diligence up front, conducting it so we can buy it. We're minimizing the risk so that we can buy the property. There's a lot of people who try to wholesale land and I get probably 20 of these a week from people trying to wholesale that are trying to get me to buy their land. They do no due diligence. They're just trying to wholesale it real quick. There's no risk on them. And that's why the reward smaller too. We're doing all of our due diligence, getting the drone shots, doing all the things that Ron's talking about, checking if it's in a HOA subdivision, getting all the restrictions, all the information up front, and then putting that risk bundle together and then acquiring it versus a lot of people like to wholesale, but they're not doing the due diligence up front, which doesn't matter. I think still it's more sustainable to do to do the due diligence because whoever you're selling it to is going to have those questions, but it's not as necessary. And I want to kind of make the difference because it's if you're not buying the property, there's no risk. Therefore... You know, we're doing all this due diligence because we're buying it ultimately. Yeah, I think it's a combination like with wholesalers, like you make more money when you buy the property, one, because of risk and two, because it's just lack of knowledge at the end of the day. People wholesale land because they have no idea what it's going to sell for. So let's try to market this out to the masses and see what happens. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that, that, that for sure, like doing the due diligence is so valuable in this stuff and 95% of the time we're going to be within 10 to 15% of what our expected sales price is. And when we're buying at 35, 45% of market value, there is so much margin in there to undercut the market. But like we've talked about, like this entire episode is you get seriously burned when either you buy for too high and you get burned or you just get burned in general. You didn't do your wetlands due diligence. You didn't get boots on the ground. You didn't look at the slope. Uh, you don't know HOA. You don't know city restrictions. Those are like the common things where you can get burned. Absolutely. And those are things that 
I think it comes back to around when these people are emotionally attached, they're trying to close their property, they're trying to secure funding and just get it through. That's where we see that happen the most. So even if you guys are funders, like even if you're not acquiring your own deals, this is stuff you want to double check. You're the manager, the person who found the property brings it to a funder. You want to do the same due diligence as them, honestly, or at least double check them until you have that relationship and that trust, because that's where we see a lot of people being burned as well. And this leads me to Ron, I want to talk about just you know, uncovering the land, uncovering what's going on, figuring out the land, being a skeptic, because that's what it is. We're looking at the land and we want to find what's wrong with it. As a due diligence, like that's your job. Sales, you want to get acquisition sales, you want to get it under contract. Due diligence, you want to find what's wrong with it. And then every, I think every stage needs to act separate. And during this stage, unfortunately, you have to disconnect from your sales, from your acquisition side, if you're doing this all by yourself and you have to be a skeptic and you just got to put those boots on. Yeah, a lot of people in a lot of our students, a lot of people like that, like they're doing everything and it's very understandable to have a bias. Like, okay, I'm doing the due diligence now and I just got this PA and I want this deal to go through because I want to make money on the back end. But like Daniel said, detaching from yourself, that's why our due diligence person is completely different than anyone who is, uh, I don't know, financial, like us, our business making more money doesn't help them make more money. So that person is extremely unbiased in the deal in general us buying another deal isn't going to help them in any way. Um, their responsibility is to be unbiased with the due diligence, get us accurate things so we can make the final decisions. Um, so yeah, that position in general, I think, whether it's you doing it or someone else doing it, being unbiased. And I think when it's only you doing it, getting other sets of eyes on it is really important, whether it's a funding partner or bring it to us on our Wednesday calls, getting other sets of eyes on it. So you're not like, thinking you're crazy about thinking this deal's a buy for 40, sell for 100, getting that confirmation or getting another couple set of eyes is really valuable. Let's talk about a couple situations, Ron. Can you think of a situation where, you know, we thought we were buying a great piece of land, maybe we missed something, whatever happened, or this could be a member also. Um, Just a situation recently you heard of where due diligence goes wrong or they didn't check or whatever. I mean, our most recent situation is probably with our mobile home when we had a tenant in there. Like it is not the easiest thing to find out if you have a squatter on your property in a mobile home, Uh, but it is feasible for you to do that. I'm very skeptical when I see a livable mobile home and I didn't ask enough questions and I trusted the sellers too much much in this situation. That's another big one is trusting sellers can absolutely kill your due diligence. Think of that. Oh, it's bad. Um, so that's probably the best situation or the most recent situation, terrible situation, but most recent that I can remember is just not making sure that there's not anyone living in a mobile home that uh, we bought. But it's okay because if you guys are fine with these margins, we're still buying at $15,000 and selling it for 40, right? And it just took a while to get the eviction and Ron had to drive. To, <laughs> to yeah, you don't have to drive to seven hours. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so it's not ideal, but the money's still there. If you guys want to go after properties with mobile homes and a victim, like in, in these counties, they're very, very landlord heavy landlord favorites from where, from where we were, you got to be careful state by state, but it was not hard, that hard of an eviction process besides just having to show up. I mean, you showed up to court, the judge knew the guy and he was very in favor of us. We just had to kind of show up. The other party didn't even show up. So yeah, I just wanted to talk about a situation that's happened to us because it does happen and we could have avoided that by getting drone photos or getting a realtor there before and just making sure it's empty, those type of things. Cause you'll hear Ron now on our calls. Like if you guys are on our Wednesday calls, he'll see a mobile home. He'd be like, make sure no one's living in that mobile home. It's because this was such a recent event for us. But yep. let's talk about what to do if something goes wrong. I know it's very situational by situation, but let's say prior to buying, yep. you find something wrong. What do we do? 
So yeah, definitely situation to situation. Like you have a few options. Obviously one option is backing out of the deal. Like this is a deal killer, whatever the situation is. Um, I found out zoning can't be built on whatever the situation is. Uh, backing out of the deal is always an option. Title company might charge you some money, but sometimes that is a cheaper option than buying the deal than taking three months to sell it and making $500. I don't know. Um, and then you also have the option to negotiate down. Um, I guess there's three options then. What I'm thinking is backing out, negotiating down, which is pretty self-explanatory, and then getting the issue resolved before closing. Or so just whether, going and ignoring it. I guess there's four then. Yeah, exactly. It's not that serious of an issue or depending on the issue. True. Yeah. So you have all those different situations. I think like getting it resolved, like some things need a survey or something like that, or you want to make sure that eviction happens before you buy the property. Or like Dan was talking, like maybe you're okay with the risk. Uh, but you know, going in, I think you have the so surveys that exactly. happens where we're like, we know the risk. It might be five acres off. It's a 40 acre property. The title company is not insuring it. We're going to get it. The seller needs to close. We're going to get this survey before closing. That's an example of where we're ignoring it, not ignoring it, knowing that we're have, uh, taking on that risk. Absolutely. I mean, that that's a really good example. I think you have so much leverage though, Dan, negotiating in these situations. Oh yeah. Like absolutely an incredible amount of power so like in that situation where it needs a survey like negotiating them like listen i'm taking all this risk on this property either you can wait two months for this survey to happen and then i'll get you your full money if everything comes back or or you can i, I can pay you five thousand dollars less right now ten thousand dollars less right now so there's so many situations but it, it, it's situation by situation right it is and you got to take the risk understand what the risk is understand what your return is and just kind of make a decision based on that like what am i buying it for what's the risk here is there any going to be, you always want to put yourself in the shoes of the future buyer. Like that's the question you want to ask. Is there a future buyer when, you know, you can't even build on this land. You can't even put a single family house on this land. Is there a future buyer for that? What does the future buyer look like? There's no way they're going to buy that property for the same price as just the regular retail. So what do you have to do? You have to go back and negotiate. So those are the things you want to look at. Just think of the future buyer. Think of the risk. Think of, uh, even if you're using a deal funders money, think of their money and where that is being placed. And if it's being placed in a safe area, I think overall. And then post-purchase, Ron, this is where it gets a little bit tricky. Yeah. You buy a property. This happens a lot, too. You buy a property, find something. You sell the property. It's under contract, and they discover something. This just happened to us. Yeah. It's definitely not an ideal situation. And it's if you do enough deals, it is going to happen where a title company messes up. Um, either a title company messes up or you mess up with due diligence is probably what we're more so talking about. You got to figure a way to sell the property, whether it's breaking even, whether it's losing $500, communicate with your deal funder. If you have a deal funder, do not try to keep this stuff from deal funders. Uh, I see it all the time where people do that. Uh, if it's a little thing like, okay, just solve it yourself. Uh, let them know, but selling the property, figure out a way to find an end buyer with the situation. We've had some crap, crap, crap situations that we've sold. Uh, we're like Daniel said, we're going through one right now. We had a property we bought, um, that, uh, only had access eight year, eight months a year. Uh, and we so didn't know that when we bought it, we didn't know when we bought it. We ended up calling our salesperson, called all the neighbors and ended up selling it to a neighbor. We made like 10 or $12,000, which I was ecstatic about. We got our money back, made some money, but it's not an ideal situation. That is a due diligence that we missed. But at the end of the day, like you got to figure out a way to sell the property. Like you can't, there's no excuse. You can't go back. You can't go to the seller who sold it to you and whine to them. You got to look forward and find out a way to sell it. Or you go to the title company if it's a title issue and see if you can dispute that because those things happen. Like we just bought a property with, we so we bought a property, we had it listed, we sold it during their due diligence. They got the title search and it had a lien on it. So we're going through that right now. That's a situation where 
Hopefully we can put that risk on someone else. That doesn't have a lien. That has four other people who own interest in our property. Um, mm -hmm. I don't even know if you knew that. Um, but yeah, this is a situation where the person who sold us the property had three quarters interest in the property. Um, and then there's four other people who own a quarter interest total in our property. So now that's obviously going to be a thing where we have to either go to the title company or try to buy these people off and get them to quick claim the deed to or quick claim the rest of the property to us. Um, so you're going to run into these things, guys, Dan. I, I, it's just going to happen if you do enough deals. Absolutely. Next thing I want to talk about is just going back to kind of the basics, Ron. Let's just walk through our due diligence checklist. What what should someone do? They have a property under contract. The seller agreed to $50,000. They get the purchase agreement back. What should someone, what, what should they be doing first? So first thing is ID land map, right? Doing your land due diligence, seeing if it's in a floodplain, wetlands, landlocked, or has road access, all those different things that we talk so much about. That's called base like computer due diligence. You can do the base due diligence in five or 10 minutes. Um, then you're going to go and that what we do is go and look at the price. Like I'm going to look at the price. This is after we get a purchase agreement, look at the price. Like, okay, there's maybe it's not the perfect piece of land, but it's pretty solid land. I'm going to be okay with this price. Then you're going to either you or a transaction coordinator, due diligence person is going to call the county, find out the zoning restrictions, get the deed, get a survey if they have it. Um, I said zoning restrictions already, Dan. And then uh, make sure everything else Read checks the out. Deed. Electric, utilities. Surveys. Yeah, all, all this stuff. Like go through the deed, look through the deed in uh, detail, make sure you have the right seller. The seller actually owns the property. Um, but yeah, that's kind of the last step of due diligence is that legal aspect survey deed restrictions, all those things are going to kind of final your due diligence. And then we go back and review price again, I guess also drones, Dan, we said, yeah, I was going to say that boots on the ground, we get boots on the ground, whether it's drone or real that are before every purchase we make, just because we've been burned in the past where there's been gullies on the property or just things we could have just so easily avoided with drone pictures. It's just kind of sums up the due diligence. If we there's a question mark we have before buying that we want, it's sloped off the property. It's going steep downhill right off the road. Okay, let's actually get eyes on that. Let's see what it's going. Let's get let's ask the drone or the realtor for their opinion, whatever the situation is. We always want to get boots on the ground before buying. Yeah, that that is that last step. Sometimes we do it during title. Sometimes we do it before we send a title. It's kind of your preference. There is some risk if you do it after you send a title because if something goes wrong, but you also have a risk of not sending a title and waiting on your drone and then the seller's waiting and anxious to get their money. So it's really your choice of that, but it's something we do for every single property before we buy is boots on the ground, either a drone or a trusted realtor. It's not a new realtor. I don't use new realtors for my boots on the ground. If we're using a new realtor, I'm going to get a drone as well to confirm everything that they're saying. But uh, that is a huge, huge step that a lot of people skip, I think. Yep. You have anything else to add, Ron? I don't know. I don't think so. I mean, <laughs> I think this is really good, good value. Awesome. Well, as always, guys, thank you for joining. Please like and subscribe our YouTube channel. It really helps drive our mission forward. Thank you for joining, and we'll see you guys next episode. Thanks, guys.